The following content may contain strong language. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Theatre Delicatessen podcast. That's the podcast from Theatre Delicatessen. My name's Ronan Smith, I'm one of the co-artistic directors. With me trying to work out exactly where that noise is coming from, it's producing creator Lydia Thompson. And today, to round off the first sort of sequence of interviews that we undertook, it's me talking to David Jubb, artistic director of Battersea Arts Centre. So when we started this podcast, the idea was that we do a first season, try and get them up quite regularly and see where it took us. And to be honest, this is where it's taken us. The first six episodes are people who've inspired me, continuing to inspire me or who, whose work I just generally admire. Um, and all of them kind of speak to how Theatre Delicatessen has evolved, or at least part of how Theatre Delicatessen has evolved. My input into Theatre Delicatessen, which is by no means even half, but just one voice in many. But this is what my experience gives me to offer. So we're at episode six. This is where we've got so far, and it's sort of a closing in that we come from where we started, Tom Morris, Artistic Director of BAC, to current Artistic director of BAC David Job. For me part of the wonder of BAC is that it continues to evolve. It has gone from a crucible and a hotbed of new theatre making to being a place which is much more about the community that it finds itself part of, the local community of, as my colleague Alex Skyne used to say, of being in service to the people whom surround it. There's something really special about that building and there's something very special about the people that have inhabited that building over the years. And there was a moment when it felt that all that was perhaps gone. And that was when we heard the news that fire had broken out in BAC's Great Hall. It was a very visceral experience because I remember the first time I went to BAC and watching the trains that that you know the old mm-hmm. bar and watching the trains those lines of lights coming backwards and forwards into Clapham Junction and then however many years it was later a couple of days after the fire and having to do that journey on the train and almost not wanting to look mm. almost kind of feeling mm-hmm. it quite kind of there in my chest that I just I kind of don't want to see it. Mm, mm. And what was interesting was what that provoked in so many people I know as well mm. was that it felt like a, it, it you know it felt like we'd lost our home or something. God knows what it kind of felt for you, for, mm. for you guys. But did you, out of everything that happened, did you kind of acknowledge that, or were you fully aware that there was this whole landscape of people doing various different things who kind of traced so much of what they did to Battersea Arts Centre. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think I had exactly the same experience as you in that I I didn't look at it for six weeks. Really? Yeah. So when I, cause I was off site when the fire happened and when I travelled in, I was watching the fire on Twitter 
Uh, so watching the kind of story unfold on Twitter, and by the time I got there, it was six o'clock. So the fire had been going for about an hour and a half and was under control. Um, but I, I remember my first. Uh, I didn't look at it outside the window on the train, <laughs> and I um, the first thing I knew about it was when the doors of the train opened and the smell hit you at Clapham Junction. It's half a mile wow. away, and you can smell, and you just think, "Wow!" I actually yeah didn't from that moment until six weeks later look down Town Hall Road to look at the fire um, or to look at the site. I think I kind of took a very loose glance, but mm. I think I knew in that moment, I've, I've thought about this since, and I think I didn't know in that consciously in that moment, but I think there was part of me in that moment that knew that the focus was uh, my team was what we're going to do next is what's going to happen the next night is the front of the building and how we reopen and mm. all of those things and dealing with insurance and artists who suddenly found themselves homeless literally in terms of people uh, staying and also the artists like Gecko in the Grand Hall of course. Um, and to deal with all of that somehow plus looking at the scene of devastation mm. I think was somehow uh, so kind of somehow I just decided not to look at it. And actually it was only about six weeks later that I had you know, I had to go down to the site with a, I think a I think it was a mixture of um an, a sort of design team visit and and actually the Arts Council, I remember, that I actually then found myself in the in the midst of the hall looking at the devastation, <laughs> looking at what happened. Um lots of people when they described the fire and what happened to the building described often I've my experience of it was people talking as if it was like something had happened to a member of their family mm. and I think people's very personal relationship with the building comes from from what you're saying which is that people have had important moments of development or they've mm. seen some extraordinary show or they've got married there or they've done a series of workshops there and they've learned something which has changed the direction of what they've gone on to do in life mm. and so I think that that means that just like a family member who you have those sorts of experiences with the building held that kind of value in a lot of people's hearts and minds and so I think yeah and certainly for me too uh, and, and I even got married in the Grand Hall so I think not looking at it was part of dealing with that bit later mm-hmm. getting on and dealing with everything else first but I think yeah it's it's always been a building that has I mean we found out through the fire even Grace and Perry had a studio there in the 80s which wow. yeah we didn't have we didn't know there was kind of artists you know like that that had also you know it's always just been this extraordinary breeding ground for people who are doing things in a in a different way mm. and, I, and I think as you and I have talked about before and what I think is so great about the work that you do is that I think that's often because people if you give an artist a perfectly equipped black box studio or a totally blank canvas and a perfect set of paints mm. you know sometimes those that resource can be the most uncreative provocation, whereas yeah. sometimes a, an old, a former town hall or a, an extraordinary office block in the centre of Finsbury, <laughs> Finsbury Square is kind of, it's a provocation because it doesn't behave in the way necessarily that you expect an art space to yeah. behave. And so you immediately break the rules and you change, you change the way you do things. And the mo- moment you start to do that, you start to reframe what it is you do and you, it sort of breeds innovation it breeds uh, people's interest in doing things differently because i think that's that's kind of fascinating about w- w- what it is about that building and buildings are buildings and, and 
especially the way that we work, I made the decision, it was the decision very early on, to be completely unsentimental about buildings. Because otherwise mm-hmm. I would literally <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, have a But it was because because that building was not quite a performance space. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite a development space. Mm. It kind of held this middle ground between work being there but work generated there and the closest you can get is you start to go down very ugly words like incubators or creative hubs or archaic words which then come back into fashion like art centres mm-hmm. if you see what I mean mm-hmm. and that's what I think's fascinating and in a certain degree I see reflected in the way that you have often described your role as in you're an artistic director who I think wouldn't necessarily be comfortable with the moniker artist or director. Mm-hmm. Neither of those. Neither of But you've been, at B, was it 99 you first kind of started working at Bassey? As a producer, yeah. yeah. And that was with them producing, within the producing department. Because yeah. I think when I, I was first the, came... There was the and only producer. I think there was me and Sarah Golding, who's now Associate Artistic Director, and... She was participate producer and I was called development producer. And I think it was one of the very first jobs that was put out there, which was called, you know, producer. And now, of course, we've got producers coming out of every orifice <laughs> of every, of every organisation. And, but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting, I think, term. And I think particularly in terms of, I guess, the, that role of thinking about artists and their development but also thinking about buildings and space and thinking about that moment of engagement with an audience and how that happens i mean i think i've spent 10 years trying to turn the place back into a town hall um, that's interesting just because for me one of the greatest things about that building is its history and the fact that it was a town hall and london's first black mayor was elected there in 1913 emily pankhurst and charlotte despard spoke there communist party of great britain was based there in the 30s it's got this you know it's got this extraordinary history and that history seems to me to be an incredibly important part of the audience's experience. I mean, actually, when we were walking down the corridor into this room, mm. I was really interested in the company that was based here before and immediately just started thinking who's been in this building and yeah. you start to yeah, think yeah. about that history and you start to wonder who's been here before you. And the idea that a theatre is a kind of neutral space in which you don't have those thoughts, for me, is is a, is peculiar. And so a lot of the work we've done at Battersea... Um, is to sort of strip back literally the layers of pain, also re, you know, renaming things from main house to council chamber because it's council chamber. Yes, I mean, yeah, what, yeah. Main house, what does, that, what does that mean? It's sort of it's a name that belongs to a sort of version of a version of a theatre. For me, that was, that's been a really, a really important part of our journey is to try and sort of really refine the town hall because I think actually for artists and I think for the, for members of the public and for everybody who works in that building it's more interesting as a town hall than it is as somebody's approximation of an art space yes I mean I think you know it's interesting because it talks to how do we increase access or the invitation to people come in theatre and I think there's acknowledgement about when you're trying to undergo the democratisation of the theatre space. And we did not do this consciously, but taking over a old Woolworths on Sheffield High Street, it was very clear that we're the guest. 
this mm, is mm, someone else. Mm. This is a an existing high mm, street mm. with an existing history, mm. with an existing community. Mm. And the only thing we can do, or one of the things we need to do, is open the doors and, and mm. start listening and mm. respond. And so that's really interesting that mm. that's kind of then the trajectory that you've... I mean, is that something that you knew when you... When you took on the job, that that was the direction you wanted to take it in, or was that something that you no. kind of discovered on route? No, I had no idea really what I wanted to do when I started, <laughs> um, and I spent two years just thinking I'm not as good as Tom Morris. Um, so I, I really just felt a, like a constant failure in my first two years at Battersea Arts Centre. And I think something I would say to anybody who is, you know, either taking on a job, and it doesn't matter what job it is or what level it is, you know don't spend any more than two weeks thinking I'm not as good as the person before because of course the, the truth of the answer to that question is I'm not as good as Tom Morris um, in, in no way am I as good as Tom Morris because Tom Morris is absolutely brilliant and extraordinary and unique at being Tom Morris hmm. I'm actually better at being David Chubb <laughs> but it did take me a, it took me a surprisingly long time to realise that and I definitely felt when I started that I just, yeah, A, I didn't really, I kind of knew some things I wanted to do, but I suppose what you're saying is in terms of the the transformation of the building, at that point I had no idea that that was what I wanted to do. I think, again, implicitly or I had a love for that building. I think that's why I applied for the job. Hmm. Um, I remember going into, walking into the building in 1996, watching a frantic assembly show in what was called Studio One, which is now the, the Bees Knees, as it plays both for under fives. But but watching that frantic assembly show in this, in this what seemed like quite austere uh, municipal uh, environment, and but yet this kind of radical, exciting work. Hmm. And uh, even though it wasn't my favourite uh, show in the world, it kind of I just a clash of those two things really appealed. And of course, then actually, when you look at the history of the building that's consistent right back to yeah. the very beginning of it and it's always had this very kind of radical um element to it so but i think i mean as i what i've realized over the years i think through not post rationalizing but just i think realizing what was happening is that everything i uh, do in life that has any value usually comes through you know learning through experience learning yeah. through things that don't go the way i imagine they might go um which in another uh language into is scratch which is you know the yeah, idea yeah, of yeah. basically something and i think only by having a go at stuff in those first two or three years and having a very patient chair a guy called nick star who was executive director of the national theater and is now um runs the london theater company with nick heitner and their new theater the bridge theater opens soon i think that a patient chair and a patient board and a very patient staff and me just kind of beginning to work out what I wanted to do really started to happen I think around sort of 2006 when we really shifted and changed the mission of the organisation and it was at that point actually that the conversation with Nick Starr started to be about well if we're shifting the mission and we're clear about what we want to do and we're clear about where we want to go then is the building the place where we want to be and, and one of the first things that happened to me when I got appointed was I was given a paper after my appointment that was about uh, about moving, about whether we would whether we should stay in the building because we'd got down to six month leases I think. Wow. Um, so so I mean we were like you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know it's like a but but a but a model um, with that building which didn't yeah you know, it meant that there was no sort of. Um, 
I guess, stability for the organisation in that model. And so it was only really a couple of years later that then I started to think, well, actually, maybe the building is the key to unlocking all of this. But at the same time, we also did another, it was another little structural thing, which is that we shifted the producing team, which was currently at that time split into, as Sarah and I were, theatre producers and participation producers. And we just broke a simple thing. We just said, look, everybody's everything. Yeah. And as well as programming a festival, you're expected to be able to program a workshop in schools or you'll be able to... So you'll be able to do both those things. And that that was a key to unlocking, I think, the biggest change in the organisation, which is the beginning of the breaking down of the hierarchy. Because we used to, in the organisation, call... So it was not only called the main house, it was also called the main programme. Yes, Okay. So this, so, yeah, so yeah. your point around access and democratisation, mm-hmm. one of the biggest stumbling blocks to that within any arts, within many arts organisations, I should say, is that there is this hierarchy about the main programme, yeah. uh, the main work, um, the main stage, and that everything else then is plays secondary to that. Which is the 20 pages in the brochure and then everything else is kind of crammed into two pages at the back, which yeah. is the youth work or the Saturday stuff. Or yeah, the things or the social change work. Or the yeah. Work. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and again, there, there's that wonderful reflection, which is so many artists could not have existed without the support of mm. Mm. Battersea Art Centre. Um, mm. And that reflection again, and I, this concept of scratch, which within my professional lifetime has become a thing and an international term which started in a room at Battersea Arts Centre and everyone claims everyone else said it first Mm. Um, (laughs) I think Kazuko Hoki said it first well yeah (laughs) yes Tom claims that he thinks you said it first but Kazuko said scratch night first Mm, I have no memory of saying it at all. It's like the most tedious, boring, rational yeah, yeah, episode yeah. ever. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, that simply that you give someone time and space to make mistakes and become their better self. Mm, mm. But it strikes me that you were already beginning to develop that when you were at the Lion and Unicorn. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and it reflected what was happening at Battersea Arts Centre too at the time, which is that. So I, I was lucky enough to run the Lion Unicorn, which is a pub theatre, for about uh, 15 months in Kentish Town. And it was a venture that was run by Central School of Speech and Drama, which was kind of a visionary idea, which was that they would run, Central School would run a pub theatre so that they would give their students an opportunity for professional practice in a mm. professional context. Wow, what a great idea. <laughs> Why hasn't that happened a lot more since? I mean, it's just, a, it was, a, I think, a really, really good idea. And so my job was to programme the theatre, but also find ways, I guess, to connect students to the programme and students would also get slots in the programme. But it became really clear to me when I first took over or when we took over, Central School took over that venue, the model was these sort of three-week, four-week runs, which were based on the old kind of issue of... You know, you, people have basically, you know, saved up their life savings uh, or taken out a loan or just simply not eaten very much and have basically gone into a rehearsal room for four weeks, hoped that what comes out is going to be cracking, um, stuck it on, uh, uh, you know, few reviewers, as they used to in those days, came along um, <laughs> to review and then 
nobody would come in the middle week and then the reviews would come out and if you were lucky and the reviews went well you might get a bit of an audience in the third week and it was a really broken model it was a really I mean it was broken for all sorts of economic reasons and all sorts of uh, and also you know life reasons for people but I think it was also broken creatively because it essentially forced everybody into one kind of production method which is you magically go into a room and you're supposed to come out four weeks later and have a great piece of art. And having actually made a couple of pieces my, of work myself, which were um, terrible, uh, um, and in the in a couple of years before that, I think I had seen how flawed that model was because it's how do you, particularly I think for work, you know, it's one thing if you've got a, a script which has made a lot of the decisions already and and it's a bit like a... Architectural process. When you you know the earlier you make decisions, the more those decisions become fixed. Mm. And often, from my perspective, you know some of the best decisions you make in rehearsal rooms are the later decisions you make. Because the more, in a way, the later you make them, the more things those decisions are informed by. So it's inevitable that your decisions become richer because of the fact that there's more things feeding into them. Anyway, so basically the the idea of the Blind Unicorns programme shift was really obvious, which was that you actually break that model and cycle and you programme two, three nighters a week um, on the basis that those artists would then, in a two-monthly season turnaround, you know, do one three-nighter in one mm. season and then maybe come back two seasons later having done a bit more work on it and would essentially iteratively develop their ideas to the point where then actually perhaps the work was ready for that three-week run creatively and more likely to be reviewed. Hopefully it also built up a bit of word of mouth and a kind of network around it. might also have built up more likely the chance of funding because perhaps an Arts Council person had been along or somebody else had Mm. been along. I think that's really interesting. I think it's the bit that that a lot of... And, you know, when we had scratch nights, you miss, which was this idea of a 10, 20 minute performance of a work in progress or an idea, which then there was kind of this offshoot, especially with Tassos and the Raw Project and the great scratches that I saw, mm-hmm. where it just became mm-hmm. a piece of itself. It became like the rawest way that a theatre mm-hmm. maker mm-hmm. could present an idea and it might never, ever go, mm-hmm. go anywhere. So mm-hmm. that, that kind of was, mm-hmm. was a way in which it went. But that... that this was a first step mm. and it was there was this idea that 10 minutes would lead to three nights would lead to three weeks mm. um whereas it's then kind of the ethos has kind of changed into it's it's a pitching an idea mm. and there isn't and it's something we talk about a lot because when we don't have the obvious performance space and yet we want to work with artists it's how do we take them the next step on the journey mm-hmm. and how do we um, I'm intrigued because the best kept secret uh, you actually made work in what role was you, you said you'd made a couple of pieces of work was this as a performer or as a director as a sort of absent director <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of yeah I made shows um, both were performed at Oval House and uh, one at the Edinburgh Festival based in inside a 26 foot inflatable jelly um and most of the time in directing it i would basically set people an exercise and then leave the room (laughs) (laughs) just because i found the other the other things to do with actually the making of the work much more interesting um or maybe much more interesting much more in my comfort zone much more in my ability much more my range of abilities i think i haven't got the i think directors are 
great directors have got that kind of craft skill which is the ability to very patiently work out dramaturgically how you make you know something how you get to take something from there to there and how you piece that together and it's an incredibly um uh, detailed brilliant and patient job and i just found that i didn't have that i was kind of interested in the con i mean it's probably why i did a you know it was a show called gasp and it was inside an inflatable jelly and it was all about you know nightmare parties <laughs> and so conceptually um you know in in the in as became clear to me the graveyard in the pleasant's courtyard i didn't realize it was a graveyard came <laughs> <laughs> a graveyard in more ways than one and then it, yeah so i think um realizing and recognizing that I wasn't yet patient enough, I think. And so one of the things about being a producer that I think is so fantastically exciting is I love that moment. I think the first real moment was actually coming up to, back to Kazuko Hoki and Kazuko and the Frank Chickens, um, 16 Japanese um, women performing at the Lion Unicorn in a theatre with about 85 people in it with a licence for about 40, all smoking, all drinking you know, 100 people in a room, Casico and the Frank Chickens at the top of their voices, and just standing back and looking at this scene and thinking, I brought these people together. This is a... And I often talk about producing as hosting a great party. It's, you know, it, it was a feeling of this is a gathering of people that I've made, I've brought this together. Now, put me in a room with Casico and the Frank Chickens to work out some dramaturgical sort of shift that needed to happen in their act and I'd probably fall to pieces but actually the the kind of shaping of it if you like um I I really loved and what what so what was it about the artist or the work that that you would key into because you have that half of the party which mm. is the those people and then you've kind of got the audience on the other mm. side they, they're also invited to the party and mm. sometimes don't turn up mm. uh, sometimes don't even get the invitation mm -hmm. and sometimes leave halfway through the party anyway <laughs> but, but um, was it a conscious decision to kind of stay with the, the Casicos of this world and not go to the more traditional route of finding a good writer finding a good director which other pub theatres were kind of doing at the time mm. Yeah, no, that never appealed in any shape or form or sense. I mean, largely just because I find it really boring. Um, so when you go and sit down and watch a play, I will be the first person to sleep within about five minutes. I just don't. My pay. I just don't have. I mean, maybe it links to the patience thing. I don't have the attention span to really just hold. I'm not actually very good at lis listening. To I think actually I'm very. I'm actually I'm good at listening. In my work, I think that's one of the things I think I think I'm quite good at as a producer. But when I'm when I sit down and listen, I feel like I'm in a classroom. Mm. I sort of feel like I it's so much of the my issues as an adult, I think, do relate back to a very particular form of education, which frankly everybody experiences. You know, which is that kind of batch-led information share. I think it's improved a lot, hasn't <laughs> it? But but it wasn't great. And I didn't read anything as a kid. I read Fantastic Mr. Fox. That was about the only book I think I ever read. It was a good book. It's an amazing book, yeah. Yeah, and so I think I've always lacked that chip. But as a producer, going back to the kind of party analogy, I think I have, I'm also quite good at knowing what does make a good party. And in relationship to a show, particularly with people who are devising or creating a show in an ensemble, I've got an ability to know what needs to happen. 
I don't know then how to make it happen. Mm. But that's where amazing artists, amazing directors are so good. So I think on the occasion when I do offer dramaturgical support to an artist, then I know that I might offer, a, 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 I think what I hope is a useful piece of advice in terms of the audience's experience of that work and what is more likely to keep people's attention and focus and interest in it. But I then don't know, I wouldn't then, if you asked me then to step into that rehearsal room and make that happen, mm. I would flounder um, and wouldn't know how to do that. It's re- it, it really speaks to what, what you're saying about the the way that which you learn. And we were having this conversation with a, with a meeting with um, the Stamp Supporting Theatre and Mesa Performance, which mm. is kind of the network which BAC are part of and CPT mm. and, and Shoreditch Town Hall amongst many, many others. Um, and this came up about, you know, historically, and Tom referred to this, you know, the people who got good directing jobs were the people who could interview well. Mm. Mm. And the people, how do you get over the fact that the people who get great opportunities are those that can write applications mm. well or express their ideas verbally or on paper mm. and actually the whole kind of the elephant in the room to a certain degree is that if you are choosing to confront the world or understand the world and understand yourself through performance you are consciously saying this is the way that I I wrote to work mm-hmm. not through writing it down on paper and, mm-hmm. and things that and, and that way and Which, there's a total um, you know repetition in that model as well where it self-replicates so you know, certain kinds of people with certain kinds of education run theatres and then they look for and programme work that looks like or feels like, goes back to your point about values, that feels like it sort of fits with their values mm. or fits with their view of the world. And then we wonder why the sector has such a woeful lack of diversity in terms of the leadership of organizations like Battersea Arts Centre and I'm very conscious that I'm part of that so for me the thing that we have to do as organizations is think about I mean our our mission for many years was to invent the future of theatre for about 10 years that was our focus and it was all about the development of the art form and the development of the artist and that was great and exciting and led to some really exciting work being developed but I do think it also was a version of what I've just said which is that you know, the producing team made up of me, made up of Richard Dufty, made up of Shelley Hastings. You know, we were all looking for theatre that we all loved and we all adored and all fell in love with. Mm. And I think there's a problem with that. Um, <laughs> because it just creates this, it does create a sort of replicating model of that same mm. set of values. So profoundly for us, a big, big shift was when we started to work we were very inspired by this man called Marcus Faustini who we met in Rio de Janeiro, who's a theatre director and also a kind of Secretary of State for Culture politician, great kind of shape-shifting activist artist who grew up in a favela in Rio. And when the favelas were being pacified, this was about six, seven years ago, as a process sort of leading up to the Olympics, which was a very politically contentious uh, process where tanks were moving into the favelas and kind of pushing out drug dealers and then a new police force locally employed was set up. One of the things that he noticed that first thing that happened was that mobile phone stalls would kind of pop up on street corners and young people would be given jobs, uh, offered jobs selling mobile phones. And in one way, that's, you know, a positive thing because it's kind of commerce moving into areas or communities where it hadn't been before and young people are getting jobs. So, you know, in one way, that's that's progress. In another way, that's kind of quite disappointing in terms of if favela communities, which are incredibly 
varied and inspiring if they are to reinvent themselves and to develop their own forms of growth yeah. in terms of um, economic development then feels like mobile phone stores popping up on street corners is kind of the mainstream orthodoxy moving in and young people yeah, taking yeah, their yeah. first rung on that long long ladder and so Faustinius thought was well what what could my theatre devising process how could I use that to enable young people to develop their ideas. So if I use a scratch process, and his process is very scratch-like, if I use a scratch process to develop my ideas as an artist, why not use that as a methodology to support a young person to develop their own idea for a business, for a social enterprise, for a project, for something that they they feel passionate about and that they want to do? So not... And and I suppose you can tell where I'm going with this. So, so the agency, I should say... Uh, as it ran in in the favelas in Rio for five six thousand young people has then been adopted and adapted in contact in Manchester and Battersea Arts Centre three four years ago now, and for me is a totally profound moment in our development as an organisation because it's a moment where we kind of realised that the scratch process that we were using to support and develop artists is also incredibly valuable process to develop anybody's ideas you know it's a blindingly obvious thought and actually you know we've now used scratch to develop the building through the architectural process we've used we've used it in schools and it's that realization that actually in itself it is a great way for people to develop their ideas and then that starts to broaden your definition of actually what you are as an art center as a cultural center because of course you're helping people to develop ideas that are within the scope, I guess, of what one might describe in an economic sense as the creative industries, but actually are very, very broad and very diverse in terms of what they are. Mm. So I now know stuff about board game development. I know stuff about how to make uh, beauty products out of your kitchen uh, um, ingredients in your kitchen. And I know stuff about um, uh, the challenges that... Uh, that young refugees to this country face and how you might tackle that with something called uh, a football club called I Speak Football. And these are all ideas that have emerged from local young people who they have used Scratch to develop. And, of course, Scratch is a great quality um, development method as well because you're constantly asking people for their feedback on your ideas. So you're... Yeah, so, so unpick that because, you know, to, to get from this idea that it's... You know, Tassel Stevens sat for 10 minutes listening to his own recording on stage of himself and having a conversation with himself to see whether that idea will become a, a theatre performance to actually how does that translate? What What's the essence of it that you then take to give it that kind of universal adapter? How does what what's the, the meat of it, if you see what I mean? I mean, I think it's I think I mean, Tassos is such a great example because I think he so profoundly uses an iterative you know, approach to all of his work, whether that work be something which might develop into a performance or a piece of radio or actually with TAS, a, a social change project. Mm. I just think he's a really good example, actually, of... And I think so much of what we do as an organisation is inspired by independent artists because I think so, independent artists always have usually... are always ahead of organisations. Organisations <laughs> lag behind and it's our job to be more fleet of foot. But to answer your question directly, you know, it's somebody being inspired and having an idea. And that's that's the heart of Scratch is that it's always about... So it's not a kind of... Lots of people now talk about co-production, particularly in the museum sector, or co-creation, where it's all about... The language is often about empowering audiences or the public to create, and then the organisation supporting that. 
but often the invitation in that offer to the public is that we are an orchestra so come and play or mm. we are a theatre so come and act or we are a, a gallery so come and paint whereas the shift for us has been actually into territory like the agency where it's actually whatever your idea is um, we'll support you to develop it so someone has an idea there is then a process of planning which usually can be facilitated by we call them producers but actually somebody who is able to facilitate and enable and get that individual who's got that idea to think about how they might test it Mm. then there's a practical test some sort of public test and that's the risky moment because that's the moment where both whoever the idea is being tested on is taking a risk because they don't know what's going to happen but equally the person whose idea it is is taking a risk then it's gathering the feedback and the responses from that and that can be done in you know multifarious ways then it's about assessing and understanding that feedback and filtering that feedback because scratch is not about remember it's about somebody's idea so it's not about just absorbing everybody's feedback and trying to slam you know crunch that into your because actually that just turns things to mush often the most useful feedback in any test is simply to ask somebody could you tell me what you experienced so it's not what did you think or what would you do or would you like it a bit more like this or a bit more like that. If you literally say to somebody, could you just tell me what you experienced? God, that just gives you so much interesting information because in the way that somebody simply describes what's happened to them, you learn so much about mm. your idea. Then you assess and I suppose I try and understand and filter that feedback. And then crucially, I think within all the scratch process, you bugger off and do something else you know you try and forget about it for a yeah, while whether yeah. that's an afternoon or six months and that gap is so crucial so that when you come back to the beginning again and rethink your idea so often you do have that opportunity which going back to our earlier conversation in that four-week rehearsal room where you're charging towards opening night where there is very few moments where you can doubt yourself and how do you support that process because i because I find it very hard when someone says, especially when you're, you, I, I get invited to works and progresses mm, mm. and I go to works and progresses and we hold them at the old library and, and when we're developing work and we see the work. And I am, one of the things that I am learning, which will be lifelong is how do I support that process? Mm, mm. Um, and how do I give feedback mm -hmm. because you know part of me is still a, a director and therefore I want to mm. fix it mm -hmm. and I started saying and I can hear other members of the team saying and now I am describing my show mm. and sure, kind of sure. using yeah, that sure. as a way of distancing to go I would do it like this and that's but again that's not necessarily useful um it's probably not useful at all how does one give feedback you know well mm. when you say what did i experience is mm. it a very emotional response or do you talk about form or do you put yourself in the place of the audience or well it's really interesting i think i mean what we it, it, for all of the work we support and we don't get this right we get it wrong all the time and you're constantly learning about and also of course everybody's different and some people just want to be told after a performance or after they present their idea it was brilliant you know they just don't <laughs> want to hear anything else and i kind of totally respect that it's like why would you want to hear anything other than that was the best thing that i've ever seen you're amazing i've just fallen in love with you it's kind of like that's sort of what you know that is an understandable response I think it's about how you set it up so 
I think part of it is about understanding the kinds of questions you're going to ask. Mm. You know, what are what do actually what do people really want to find out? And I think by having that conversation with an artist or an agent or indeed anybody in advance of their scratch and in advance of their test also helps you as producer kind of work out actually what do they want are they one of those sorts of people who on the night or on the day or on the event just really want to be reassured and that then the feedback comes later or are they actually really up for this and they really want to delve in straight away and neither of those is right or wrong it's just about trying to understand who they are so partly it's about uh, the questions and partly it's about the timing of the feedback and I think thirdly and this relates to the role of the producer I think often I see our role in that moment is often to host feedback coming from members of the public and not to offer feedback ourselves yet in that moment because actually if I dive into a conversation with an agent or indeed with an artist about what I think in that moment then actually they're not hearing from all sorts of probably you know much more useful individuals who are coming at the project perhaps much more um in a more distant way than i am to the project which actually means that they're probably offering more valuable information so i think part of our job as a producer is to help is to that in a way in that moment post experience post test is to help harvest the feedback rather than rather than give it then a week later we'll go okay how do we think that went I think often one of the things we've learned is that we used to sort of, you know, expect all that feedback to come in on the night and, you know, somehow to wake up the next morning and everybody know what to do with the idea or the project. And I think the thing we've realised over time is that actually that feedback process can can really take its time. Um, I, the way that I express it and the way that I've come to understand it is that the ideas have such a long shelf life and there's such a impetus when one is younger to do things quickly and to accelerate that process and actually it's a huge luxury and a privilege to be able to as I am to think back to a, an R&D I did four years ago and go I think I'm now ready to actually develop mm. that piece mm-hmm. but what's kind of fascinating and I think this is a step beyond you know simply opening up an art space and simply opening it up to the artist and the audience is underpinning all this is just it, it, it speaks of a central belief that, that the artist has an important role and the ideas that an artist, not simply the work itself, you know, the work that's about social change or is not about social change, but the methodology and the way that an artist approaches that process of creativity is kind of fundamental mm. to mm. society and how we, and an artist can have a role in stepping into a room and going, this is how I approach which I think is a huge mm-hmm. shift. Is that, again, that's something that you've kind of developed en route or would you acknowledge that as a... Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's a really inspiring thought and I think and articulates a lot of, for me, what I think that artists are so good at doing, which is asking questions, which is being vulnerable, which is being open to things not working out, which is hosting a space with doubt in it. You know, these are things that in a industrial society that works in a very mechanistic way in a very linear way and often a very non-creative way and if you think about the mechanisms of government the mechanisms of the corporate sector the mechanisms of the way that we work as a um and actually when i say corporate sector i also mean you know you look at when art, how arts organizations are run you look at the creativity that pours from um 
uh, great uh, um, artists uh, and actually the organisations are run like, you know, they're factories or something with departments all siloed into different functions and our decisions being made around on the basis of a, of a function of the organisation mm. rather than its ambition or its goal. So I totally agree. I think artists have got the most... I mean, Scratch company, you know, Scratch is not some sort of imposed model. This is just the way that a lot of artists work. Mm. You know, Grayson Perry has that amazing concrete bit of writing in his studio which says creativity is mistakes. And he just says that he knows that when he slings a pot in the bin, it's above the bin, and when he slings a pot in the bin, he knows that that's where the creativity is, that's where the learning is that will lead to the next pot being something which is which has which it has in his mind value and i think that's an exceptional thought god if our schools were run on that model and idea that as a child you know that you you learn through the experience of your of the world as opposed to feeling like there's a right answer and it's in the back of the book and don't look because that's cheating mm. you know it's a, such a profoundly different way of thinking um that I just think, yeah, it would it would radically improve a lot of people's confidence for a start, but also people's creative problem solving. There's that incredible uh, study that Ken Robinson talks about in um, one of his uh, sort of TED talks, which is this, uh, the study around divergent thinking, mm-hmm. the ability to be able to think creatively in terms of you know problem solving. And there's this study that's done that he describes where a group of 200 people are assessed for their ability to think divergently. I think. The idea being that, you know, from 0% to 100%, how many purposes can you think of for using a paperclip? Uh, and geniuses at this exercise, you know, extreme divergent thinkers can think of over 250, I think. It's a huge, you know, huge number. And uh, and this group of that they studied, 98% of them could think of over 250 purposes for a paperclip. And this group was under five years old, um, or was five years old. And then they, it's a time lateral time study, and they study them over the following 15 years, and you can guess what happens. Yeah. You know, they get to nine, and it's down to something like 60%. They get to 12, and it's down to 40. It just drops horrifically. And, and he brilliantly says in this video, that's because they've been educated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's because, you know, they have learnt what's right and what's wrong. They've learnt that there is this right answer. It is in the back of the book. And in order to be good at stuff, you need to know that. So I think what you've just said is totally right which is what to artists are brilliant at uh, helping us understand in terms of their process is that and I believe everybody's an artist and we all have this have this ability in us just needs unlocking that actually there are often in in life multiple right answers to many many different things and it's about finding what's the right answer for you rather than feeling like there is this kind of absolute and of course, even even with things like you know maths, you know when you get to the kind of really great mathematicians, actually, the you know you realise that that is also the case for them. You know, so even in even in a subject like maths, you, that 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 has some credence as an idea. And so, I think it's a yeah powerful idea. And if our schools were organised on principles around creativity rather than a, a kind of industrial psyche model, then it w- we'd be a very different society. I think. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If I 
didn't mention this in the interview with Lee Simpson, I meant to, and that's all of us have those inspirational teachers who light a fire within us or encourage us or perhaps give us something more than learning that sends us on our way into the rest of the world. Sometimes that happens very rarely, sometimes it happens a lot, but I always feel as the son of two teachers that the fact that we remember those people by name is perhaps a shame because it shows their scarcity. I had a teacher at school, Dr Peter Kramer, who really inspired me and and gave me the confidence to strike out on my own path. Uh, He was such an inspiration and became such a friend that now, over 20 years later, this summer, I went to stay with him and with another classmate and with our families to spend a week in his house in France and just be together again. And I remember an anecdote he told in class which perhaps shows the measure of the man, which was about his son at primary school. And the primary school teacher had been given the whole class this task, which was to draw a picture of a tree. So most of the kids sat down and they drew green stripe at the bottom for the earth and a brown trunk and leaves and at the top that strange band of sky which seems to be universal amongst kids drawings and it got to Dr Kramer's son and on it was just this mass of green and brown and colours and it was really abstract and kind of a mess and the teacher said but where's the tree and this kid looks up at her and says but you're inside the tree The teacher asked him to do it again, and the point of the story was the indignation that Dr Kramer showed when he told the story and when he marched into school and told this teacher, do you not realise what that showed? Do you not realise what creativity that inhabits? Why are you trying to teach that out of them? So that's the first six episodes of the Theatre Daily podcast. Thanks to everyone who's been involved. Thanks to Luke B. Ford for creating the music thanks to the team at Delhi Peter Weedman Dan Ball Jessica Brewster most importantly my artistic director and the board for giving me the support and time to create this podcast we're going to be back quite shortly with an added extra a sort of 6.5 episode which was the pilot that we did which is a bit rough around the edges but hopefully you'll find it interesting and I'd just like to say Thanks, finally, to Lydia Thompson, who is now starting our one-woman campaign to make David Job Minister for Education, and hopefully we'll speak to each other very soon. Thank you.